Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fireside Poems. I'm Dr. J. Today's episode is the third of four from John Greenleaf Whittier's long poem, Snowbound. Snowbound recounts Whittier's experience of a snowstorm as a boy on his family's farm. The first third of Snowbound describes the coming on of the snowstorm, the snowstorm itself, and the resulting closing in of the farm's house and barn. The middle part of Snowbound presents the small group snowbound within the house, the poet's family, and two boarders, as they pass the time around the fireplace. It is a cozy and cheerful time. There is a warm fire and plenty of firewood. There are mugs of cider and roasting chestnuts, and a dog and cat also enjoying the fire. The older ones gathered there share their memories of youth. The poet uses this device to tell his readers about each one in turn. Last week I read the passages that tell of Whittier's father, his mother, and his maiden aunt. This week we'll learn of his uncle and of the local school teacher who boards with them. The first thing we learn of the uncle is that he is innocent of books. That is, he can't read. In a household that values books so much, as other parts of Snowbound make clear, this can only be because the uncle has a mental disability. He is slow, as it used to be said in gentler times. This disability is no doubt the reason he is living with Whittier's family, just as the aunt's unmarried status is the reason she lives with them. The uncle is nevertheless a valued member of this little community, not just because he is loved, though that would be enough, but because he has a special gift that he shares with those around him. He is rich in nature's lore, and those who know him are richer too for the knowledge he shares with them. They are richer, too, because they are able to care for him. He is, the poet tells us in a wonderful phrase, strong only on his native grounds. That is, the wider world, the world of getting and spending, the world of complex social interactions where those less able can be taken advantage of or, worse yet, ignored, is too much for him. Let's listen. From Snowbound by John Greenleaf Whittier Our uncle, innocent of books, was rich in lore of fields and brooks, the ancient teachers never dumb of nature's unhoused lyceum. In moons and tides and weather-wise he read the clouds as prophecies, and foul or fair could well divine by many an occult hint and sign holding the cunning-warded keys to all of woodcraft mysteries. Himself to nature's heart so near that all her voices in his ear of beast or bird had meanings clear, like Apollonius of old who knew the tales the sparrows told, or Hermes who interpreted what the sage cranes of Nihilus said. A simple, guileless, childlike man, content to live where life began, strong only on his native grounds, 
the little world of sights and sounds whose girdle was the parish bounds, whereof his finely partial pride the common features magnified as Surrey hills to mountains grew in white of Selborne's loving view. He told how teal and loon he shot, and how the eagle's eggs he got, the feats on pond and river done, the prodigies of rod and gun, till, warming with the tales he told, forgotten was the outside cold, the bitter wind unheeded blew, from ripening corn the pigeons flew, the partridge drummed in the wood, the mink went fishing down the river brink. In fields with bean or clover gay, the woodchuck, like a hermit gray, peered from the doorway of his cell. The muskrat plied the mason's trade, and tier by tier his mud walls laid. And from the shagbark overhead, the grizzled squirrel dropped his shell. Next is the school teacher. He is in many ways the opposite of the uncle. He left his home, his native grounds, and went to college. He is well versed in books. He can make himself useful and welcome in any situation. He is, in a phrase, self-reliant, just as the uncle isn't. Let's meet him. The school teacher. Brisk wielder of the birch and rule, the master of the district school held at the fire his favored place. Its warm glow lit a laughing face, fresh-hued and fair, where scarce appeared the uncertain prophecy of beard. He teased the mitten-blinded cat, played cross-pins on my uncle's hat, sang songs, and told us what befalls in classic Dartmouth's college halls. Born the wild northern hills among, from whence his yeoman father, wrung by patient toil, subsistence scant, not competence, and yet not want, he early gained the power to pay his cheerful, self-reliant way, could doff at ease his scholar's gown to peddle wares from town to town, or, through the long vacation's reach, in lonely lowland districts teach, where all the droll experience found at stranger hearths and boarding round, the moonlit skater's keen delight, the sleigh drive through the frosty night, the rustic party with its rough accompaniment of blind man's buff, and whirling plate and forfeits paid, his winter task a pastime made. Happy the snow-locked homes wherein he tuned his merry violin, or played the athlete in the barn, or held the good dame's winding yarn, or mirth-provoking versions told of classic legends rare and old, wherein the scenes of Greece and Rome had all the commonplace of home, and little seemed at best the odds twixt Yankee peddlers and old gods where Pendus-born Araxes took the guise of any gristmill brook, and dread Olympus at his will became a huckleberry hill. Whittier now pauses to reflect on this young schoolteacher's importance at the time Snowbound's first readers are coming to know him. 
Snowbound was published in 1866, just a year after the close of the Civil War. Those called slaves before the war are now called freedmen, but the society around them is in shambles. How are these newly freed men and women to make their way in a world where they aren't welcome and that they have little preparation for? For Whittier, and for many New Englanders, the key to the future was education. Numberless young people from the North went South to become teachers. Many of these were women. Whittier imagines such as his former school teacher among them. Sadly, Whittier's vision of a new day when black and white will learn together and live in enlightened harmony and North and South will again become one nation proved idealistic. Racism and resentment proved strong, and we still haven't overcome them today. But Whittier's hopeful vision of a transformed America is still valuable to remind us of what could have been. Let's continue. A careless boy that night he seemed, but at his desk he had the look and air of one who wisely schemed, and hostage from the future took in trained thought and lore of book. Large-brained, clear-eyed, of such as he shall freedom's young apostles be, who, following in war's bloody trail, shall every lingering wrong assail. All chains from limb and spirit strike, uplift the black and white alike, scatter before their swift advance the darkness and the ignorance, the pride, the lust, the squalid sloth, which nurtured treason's monstrous growth, made murder pastime and the hell of prison torture possible. The cruel lie of caste refute, old forms remold, and substitute for slavery's lash the freeman's will, for blind routine, wise-handed skill. A schoolhouse plant on every hill, stretching in radiant nerve lines thence the quick wires of intelligence, till north and south together brought shall own the same electric thought. In peace, a common flag salute, and side by side in labor's free and unresentful rivalry, harvest the fields wherein they fought. Each of the parts of Snowbound I've read today could stand on its own if someone wished to include it in an anthology of favorite poems. They mean more when considered together, though, and so, just as I did last time, let me read them together so that you can savor lines that in my first readings passed by even as you were discovering them. Afterwards, I will share one final thought about their significance when taken together. From Snowbound by John Greenleaf Whittier Our uncle, innocent of books, was rich in lore of fields and brooks, the ancient teachers never dumb of nature's unhoused lyceum, in moons and tides and weather-wise, he read the clouds as prophecies, and foul or fair could well divine, by many an occult hint and sign, 
holding the cunning warded keys to all the woodcraft mysteries. Himself to nature's heart so near that all her voices in his ear of beast or bird had meanings clear, like Apollonius of old, who knew the tales the sparrows told, or Hermes, who interpreted what the sage cranes of Nihilus said. A simple, guileless, childlike man, content to live where life began, strong only on his native grounds, the little world of sights and sounds, whose girdle was the parish bounds, whereof his fondly partial pride the common features magnified, as Surrey hills to mountains grew in white of Selborne's loving view. He told how teal and loon he shot, and how the eagle's eggs he got, the feats on pond and river done, the prodigies of rod and gun, till, warming with the tales he told, forgotten was the outside cold, the bitter wind unheeded blew, from ripening corn the pigeons flew, the partridge drummed in the wood, the mink went fishing down the river brink. In fields with bean or clover gay, the woodchuck, like a hermit gray, peered from the doorway of his cell. The muskrat plied the mason's trade, and tier by tier his mud walls laid. And from the shagbark overhead, the grizzled squirrel dropped his shell. The school teacher, Brisk wielder of the birch and rule, the master of the district school held at the fire his favored place. Its warm glow lit a laughing face, fresh-hued and fair, where scarce appeared the uncertain prophecy of beard. He teased the mitten-blinded cat, played cross-pins on my uncle's hat, sang songs, and told us what befalls in classic Dartmouth's college halls. Born the wild northern hills among, from whence his yeoman father wrung by patient toil, subsistence scant, not competence, and yet not want. He early learned the power to pay his cheerful, self-reliant way, could doff at ease his scholar's gown to peddle wares from town to town, or through the long vacation's reach in lonely lowland districts teach, where all the droll experience found at stranger hearths in boarding round, the moonlit skater's keen delight, the sleigh drive through the frosty night, the rustic party with its rough accompaniment of blind man's buff, and whirling plate and forfeits paid, his winter task a pastime made. Happy the snow-locked homes wherein he tuned his merry violin, or played the athlete in the barn, or held the good dame's winding yarn, or mirth-provoking version told of classic legends rare and old, wherein the scenes of Greece and Rome had all the commonplace of home, and little seemed at best the odds twixt Yankee peddlers and old gods. Where Pendus-born Araxes took the guise of any gristmill brook, and dread Olympus at his will became a huckleberry hill.
A careless boy that night he seemed, but at his desk he had the look and air of one who wisely schemed, and hostage from the future took in trained thought and lore of book. Large-brained, clear-eyed, of such as he shall freedom's young apostles be, who, following in war's bloody trail, shall every lingering wrong assail, all chains from limb and spirit strike, uplift the black and white alike, scatter before their swift advance the darkness and the ignorance, the pride, the lust, the squalid sloth, which nurtured treason's monstrous growth, made murder pastime and the hell of prison torture possible. The cruel lie of caste refute, old forms remold, and substitute for slavery's lash the freeman's will, for blind routine, wise-handed skill. A schoolhouse plant on every hill, stretching in radiant nerve lines thence the quick wires of intelligence, till north and south together brought shall own the same electric thought. In peace a common flag salute, and side by side in labor's free and unresentful rivalry harvest the fields wherein they fought. Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay, Self-Reliance, published in 1841, 20 years before the advent of the Civil War, is taken by many, myself included, to be a touchstone of American culture. Self-reliance is often thought to be a peculiarly American characteristic. We hear echoes of this belief everywhere today, but too many take it to mean that we have no social obligations to others. If I'm self-reliant, then no one owes me anything, and conversely, I owe nothing to anyone else. Let them, too, be self-reliant. Emerson himself at times wrote as if this were true, though to his credit he didn't act as if it were true. In Whittier's schoolteacher, we can see the true worth of being self-reliant. It puts us in a position to be a help to others and a useful member of society. None of us can be completely and always self-reliant any more than Whittier's uncle can. Self-reliance and selfishness are two different things. I hope you're enjoying Whittier's Snowbound and that you'll join me again next week as I bring Snowbound to its conclusion when our little group around the fireplace is reconnected with the larger world of friends and neighbors. Until then, if you think others might enjoy fireside poems, please let them know about it through your social media so that they might join you and me each week by the fireside. <laughs>